That is a powerful song. Powerful song. Um, Open again, if you would, to uh, the book of Mark, chapter 1. You know, whenever uh, we usually begin a new sermon series in a book, uh, like we're going through Mark now, uh, usually I spend almost the entire first service just giving you the context and the background information of a book. And that's always important because it helps us to understand the book better. And I'm going to give you just a very, very little bit of that today and really use verses 1 through 8 as really kind of the background and get us caught up to speed about what this book is really about. And then as we work through the book, I'll continue to remind you and give you more of that context and background as we work uh, through the text itself. But uh, what I want to do is, um, is just give you a few truths right here, just a couple of facts. First of all, this book was written somewhere between the 50s and 60s A.D., Um, And if that is true, if the earlier dates are true, then what we know is that this book that we're about to study is probably the earliest uh, gospel. Uh, Some people hold to what's called a uh, Markan priority, which means that they believe that Mark was the first New Testament book that was written. And uh, so that's what we get to study right now in the months to come, weeks and months to come. The audience to whom this book was being written were the Roman Gentiles. And as we work through the book again, you'll see a little bit of this. It seems like the author takes a much more kinder light to the Romans and the Greeks, and there's a reason for that, and we'll see that as we work through it. And then also, and then finally, the author is Mark, or better known as John Mark. Now, John Mark was not one of the apostles, one of the 12 apostles, but he was a very close associate with the apostle Peter. And so he's writing, Mark is writing this letter, he's writing this book, However, um, it's the information, his source that he's citing is Peter. Peter's feeding him that information, telling him these stories, and he's very faithful to be able to record these stories here, Mark is. Now, what we know about Mark is that he was a a good man, a good young man, it seems, uh, for the most part. He was helpful. He went on the very first missionary journey with the Apostle Paul, uh, with he and Barnabas as well. And uh, what we find is in Acts chapter 12 and verse 13 that things begin to kind of go south a little bit in the relationship. And the reason is is because Mark decided that he wanted to quit uh, for a little while and wanted to go home. Now, the scriptures don't really tell us why he wanted to go home. But if you know anything about Paul, uh, you know that Paul was not the kind that gave up, right? So here's a guy who has been shipwrecked not once but three times, bitten by a snake, stoned, you know, beaten, you know, and here's a guy that just nothing seems to be going well for him at all. And so he's got a guy that's like, hey, this trip is too hard for me. He's like, just go home, right? So he wants to come back at his second missionary journey. And Paul just says, no, you're not going to come. And this causes a problem with Barnabas. Now, we know maybe why he had a problem with Barnabas. Barnabas wanted Mark to come because Mark just so happens to be his first cousin, right? And cousins, family got to stick together. And so he wants him to come. Paul does not, so they divide and they go their way. But we do know as we read the scriptures in several different occasions, we find that So it was just kind of a neat thing. And that's the one who actually penned the words in which we see here. That is the gospel or, in other words, the good news according to Mark. Now, what I want to do now is I just want to go ahead and unpack verse by verse the next eight verses. 
And as we do it, what I want to do is I want to really want to reflect and, and, and keep the good news in mind. So we're going we're gonna to keep or we're going to look at three different aspects of the good news according to Mark. All right? So three different aspects. Here they are. First of all, we see the good news declared in verse 1. The good news declared in verse 1. Notice, if you will, the Bible says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, I find it interesting that he begins with the word beginning. All right? Might be a good way to start uh, your book. And here it was interesting because that word, the Greek word, can actually mean two things. First of all, it can speak of a sequence as opposed to the end. And, or it could be speaking of the origin of something, of where something actually came from. Now, I believe that Mark is probably using it in both ways. The second one, even more importantly, I do believe he's saying, hey, look, this is the beginning. This is the start of the gospel that I'm about to teach you. But even more, he wants you to understand that what he is writing is just not some historical event of men kind of doing their thing. What he wants you and I to understand is that the origin of everything that he's writing within the context of these pages, the origin of it comes directly from God. This is God intervening in human history, and he's doing something, and he's bringing something about. Now, if we hold to the fact that Mark was the first gospel that was actually written, this word beginning makes it even more important and interesting. The reason is because the very first book of the Old Testament, Genesis, begins in a very similar way, right? In Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there, I believe, Moses, who was the writer of the Pentateuch in, in, in Genesis, he wrote in the beginning, and he meant it in the same two ways. This is the beginning, the, the beginning of history. But he was also saying, listen, the origin of everything and all that is created is God. In the beginning, God created. And so there we see this word being used in the beginning of creation. And now here we find in the beginning of God's recreation, of God sending his son to undo the curse in man and turning that which is upside down in sin, to turn it and make it right. And guess what? He uses the same term in the beginning. This is a sovereign act of God. You got that? Now notice this. He says, in the beginning of the gospel. Now the gospel just simply means, as we've already said, it just simply means good news. But when you really track down the history of that word, it becomes all the more helpful. Uh, during this time, the Greco-Roman world that Mark was writing this lived and wrote these particular words that were penned here. Um, there was a word, evangelion, that we still have in the Greek in our Greek Bibles. And it was a term that was used um, in the, uh, during, uh, the, uh, during a battlefield. When, once the battle was completed, the victors then would take that good news of their victory and they would send a messenger with that good news and they would send them out to their country and to their families and to their friends and through the towns and the villages declaring the good news, declaring the victory, right? And so what, what Mark is saying here is he goes, listen, I'm going to give you the message from God of victory, okay? Here's the message. Now, here's the cool thing about it. In the Greco-Roman writings that we have today, every time that word, that Greek word is viewed for the gospel, it always is found in the plural, all right? I know you're sitting there going, what does that have anything to do with anything? Well, check this out. It means the way they use it is that this is good news amongst a whole lot of other good news that we're sharing with you. 
And the Greek, the way that Mark uses it and the other gospel writers, and Mark uses it at least seven times in this particular gospel, he uses that term and he uses it in the singular to say, hey, this is the good news to end all good news. There is a lot of good news to a certain extent in this world, but there is no better news than the news that I am about to share you, the gospel, the good news, the victory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, listen, I have heard all kinds of good news. When I got down on my knees, sweating profusely at Jack's Beach, bending down, fumbling for a ring, looking up at my wife and said, will you marry me? And she said, yes, that was good news for a guy like me, okay? That was good news. It was good news for me, even better news, when we walked down the aisle and she showed up And she said, I do, and I will, and before God, I promise, and in sicknesses and health, and she goes through the whole thing. That was great news for me. And every time our children were born, when we first found out our children were born, and I I was so ecstatic, that was good news. Hey, I'm, uh, I'm pregnant, or to be politically correct, we're pregnant. Never understood that. But we, we got pregnant somehow at that point. And so when I heard that of my children, I was so incredibly excited. Now, some of that news was, was, was um, more surprising than other, but they were all incredibly joyful, good news. You guys with me? But can I just tell you this? For those who have tasted the good of the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ and understand what it means to be at the very pit of sin and God to be able to regenerate you and change you and save you for no other reason but for his glory, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest news that you can ever hear. Is it not? Now, I understand that some are sitting there going, dude, you're just playing this up. I'm not playing this up. For the gospel of Jesus Christ is the best news, the greatest news. Let it grip your soul. Let it grip your soul. And that's what he wants here. He's proclaiming the good news is declared here in verse 1. Secondly, the good news is foretold in verse, beginning in verse 2. Now notice this. He says, that is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, we could just whip through this very quickly, and if we weren't actually studying the word and just reading it, we might miss a couple of truths here that are very important for us. One is, is that when it first, in verse 2, when he says, written in Isaiah, it leads us to believe that what he's doing is he's quoting one particular prophecy from Isaiah. But when we look a little bit more closely, we find out he's not. He's actually quoting two different prophets from two different times almost several hundred years apart. The first quote there in the end of verse 2, actually he's quoting Malachi from Malachi chapter 3 in verse 1. Then the following in verse 3, the prophecy there, he's actually quoting Isaiah from chapter 40 in verse 3. So what he does here is he combines those two prophecies, and let me suggest something that is significant. To be able to quote a prophet that lived 400 years before the events took place, and then to go back even further, 700 years from that, to quote Isaiah that quoted the same exact kind of prophecy, and to deliver them right before they're ultimately fulfilled, there's great significance in that. Let me try to tap in just to a couple things to try to lead you in this direction. First of all, it's significant because it helps us to better understand God's eternal plan. 
What Mark is saying as he's introducing this is he's saying, I want you to know that this is not plan B. This is not God's second choice on how to save you. And that's how some people view the Old Testament and New Testament. They think they're two different gods, the God of wrath in, in, in the Old Testament, the God of grace in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it seems like, okay, well, the way that God is going to redeem his people is he's going to give them the law. He's going to give them the Ten Commandments. And then the people are going to become right with God either through following the law or through the sacrificial system that they had set up in the temple there. And then guess what? It didn't work out. We end up in Malachi and the people can't stop sinning and can't get right with God. And so people sometimes think, well, that plan didn't work out. So between the end of the Old Testament in Malachi and the beginning of possibly Mark, there's 400 years of silence that we term the intertestamental period and God doesn't speak to any prophets and then come on the scene and now these guys are writing the word of God, right? They're writing the word of God. So people think, well, his old plan didn't work. Now he's got a new plan. No, 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 no. He says, this has always been God's plan and I will prove it to you by bringing you eight, 900 years before this and showing you how the prophet spoke that this is right on schedule, right on plan. Listen, God in eternity's past, and I know this raises questions for you and questions for me, but this is what we know. God, before he even created you and I or the foundations of the world, he knew that he would have to send his only son to die for sinners like you and I to redeem them back to himself. And that's what we find here. That's why it's significant that he's blending these together. Secondly, it helps us to under, better understand who Jesus is. Now, if you, you'll flip very quickly, and if you don't have time, if you're not a quick flipper, it's okay. Just jot it down. But over in Malachi chapter 3, what we find is these prophecies, when we actually read them, which is a good thing to do, by the way, um, you find out that all the prophecies are speaking about a forerunner that will come that will prepare the way of God himself. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's God speaking. You, you with me so far? In Isaiah, check this out, he does the same exact thing. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, he says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So here's the significance. In all the prophecies, he says, there's one that's going to come. It's going to prepare the way for God's coming, right? Well, then we hear here in Mark, and who is the one that comes immediately after the forerunner? Jesus. You know what he's telling us from the get-go? This Jesus is no ordinary man. Jesus is God. And what he's going to do for the first half of this book, jot this down, for the first half of the book, he's going to spend all his time convincing you and I that Jesus is God. There's a third significance. The third one is it helps us to better understand the ministry of Jesus. Mark wants us very clearly to understand something, that when he's writing this, this is not a guidebook unto life like some people view the scriptures. Some people look at it as like a Rolodex. Well, I'm having problems with this. Let me look it up. Let me see what it says. Let me see what it says about my taxes. Let me see what it says about what car I should ultimately buy. And I'm not saying that the word of God does not contain principles and wisdom that can help us in an everyday life, but it's not the purpose of the book. And what Mark is saying here, he goes, listen, this is not just a God book unto life to help you through the life, to make your life better. It's not some kind of collection of moral do's and don'ts that are good for you to be able to ascribe to. And for you to pass on to your children so that you could be a good American. That's not the point. 
He says, he says, he says here, he says the reason why he's passing this down is because it is demonstrating and teaching us the path and the way to God. Did you notice those verses? It says at the end of verse 2, who will prepare the way? He says in verse the end of verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. He says the purpose of this gospel and of this writing is to help you and I to understand what it takes for us to have a right relationship with God. And the only way to do that is through the way. Who is the way? Jesus Christ is the way. All right? So that's the significance of that. Now notice something. He does something beginning uh, in verse 4 through 8. What he does here is he begins to kind of explain and give some characteristics of who this forerunner is and what he's kind of all about. Of course, we know that forerunner is John, a man by the name of John the Baptist that we refer to him as. Now, what we're going to find is, is he doesn't really give a whole lot of description or at least the elaborate kind of spectacular description of John as some of the other gospel writers do. For example, in Luke chapter 1, this is how he opens up. When he speaks of John, he talks about his, all the circumstances and the miraculous circumstances around the birth of John. That an angel appears to his, to his dad, right? Appears, he's a priest, Zechariah, and, and he's, in the, he's, he's in worshiping in the temple. And an angel appears to him, tells him that he is going to have a child. He doesn't believe him. Why? Because he and his, and his, and his wife are old, and, and there's no way that they can conceive a child. And, but yet, we find out that they do. Then over in Matthew, we hear even more of John's preaching. It's, it's this intense preaching where he tells the people, he tells the Jewish people, hey, you say that you have, you have um, uh, Moses uh, or Abraham for, excuse me, Abraham for your fathers? He says, listen, I'm telling you, if you don't repent and get right, that you will be cut down like a tree at its root and thrown into the fire. It doesn't matter who your grandpappy was. you got to be right before God, right, through repenting and through believing. But Mark doesn't give us any of those really dynamic characteristics. Instead, what he does is he just explains in verse 4, he explains John's ministry in verse 4, 5. In verse, um, in verse um, 6, he explains John's appearance. And then finally, in verse 7 and 8, he explains John's purpose. Now, the question is why? Why does he give these very succinct descriptions of the prophet and he leaves out all that other stuff? He's got a reason for doing. Here's why. He is purposely trying to draw a direct, undeniable relationship and link between John the Baptist and the prophet Elijah. You say, now, why in the world would he ever try to do that? He's doing that because the people during Mark's day believed that it was going to be Elijah that would come back before the Messiah would ultimately come. Why did they believe that? Well, again, in Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4 in verse 5, this is what Malachi prophesies. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they're believing that it's going to be actually Elijah, not an Elijah type, but Elijah himself is going to come back, which begins to make sense when you think of what happens in 2 Kings chapter 1. There, he's about to, his ministry is done, and does he die? No. A chariot of fire comes from heaven, comes down, swoops him up, and brings him back into heaven. So they think, he doesn't die. He can then come back in that same chariot and prepare the way of the Lord. Now, we know even more that this was the belief during the day when we look at Mark chapter 9. When we fast forward and look at Mark chapter 9, there's a story there of Jesus and his disciples. 
And there, they're up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And that's where Jesus basically says, hey, you see my human body, uh, check this out. And he peels back the layer, not, not literally, okay, but kind of peels it back. And all of a sudden, his, his disciples see him in all his glory. He's sitting there in his glory, and his disciples are going, let's build a tent. Why build a tent? Because we're going to die. We're in the glory of God. We need to hide ourselves, right? And so, so they're, they're wanting to go down. Well, he does this. They get done, and they realize it just clicks. Hey, whoa, whoa, this Jesus is God. So they're walking down the hill, and you can read it back there in the Word of God in, in uh, Mark chapter 9, and verse 12. And they asked the question, they said, or excuse me, verse 11, they said, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And then, because they know that Jesus, the Messiah, God has come, but yet where did Elijah, how did we miss it? Because of the prophets? And then Jesus responds this way. Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of him. Who was the Elijah that was called to come? It wasn't going to be specifically Elijah. It was going to be an Elijah type, somebody that was almost exactly like Elijah. Who was it? John the Baptist. And they did to him whatever they liked. What did they do? They killed him. That's what they did, as it was foretold in the prophets. Now, notice something. Now, understanding that, then all of a sudden these similarities that he draws between John and Elijah become far more important. Look at, look at the similarities. First of all, there's a similarity in location. We found it in verse 4 that John ministered primarily uh, near the Jordan out in the wilderness. But then when you look at the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 2 through 3, it tells us there that Elijah spent a huge amount of his time in the same wilderness near the same, near the same Jordan just like John. Similarity. Number two, similarity of his dress. We see in verse six, he says, and John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. Second similarity, second Kings verse one, verse eight tells us that Elijah wore a garment of hair with a leather belt around his waist. Do you see what he's doing? He's, you see what he's doing? He's drawing connection. Now, here's another similarity, but it's, it's not found specifically in Mark, but it's also the boldness of their speech. We, we read about John, and John is telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those are the religious leaders of the day. He's telling them, you guys are wrong. You need to repent, right? He's calling them a brood of vipers. I mean, this guy is bold, right? To guys that could ruin him. And then on the other side, we look into the Old Testament and we find Elijah with the same boldness confronting king, wicked King Ahab and his sweet wife Jezebel about their sin, telling them they need to turn from their sin and to be able to repent. Do you see these, these tight-knit tapestry of all these prophecies in this description fitting together one in one where you sit there and go, yeah, okay, well then John has to be the forerunner that it was told of in the Old Testament. Why? Because he's exactly like Elijah. Why is that important? It's important because if you can nail down that John is indeed, according to all of this context, towards all of this prophecy, towards all of this evidence right here, if you know that he is, he is indeed the forerunner, then the one he's going to come after him and he's going to point to is going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the one. He's writing all this to build confidence in the heart and the mind of the reader that Jesus truly was the Son of God. Now, I have people on time to time, guys that I'm trying to counsel and minister to and, and uh, trying to mentor, 
um, they will often say things like this, and they're just being completely honest. They'll say, Brother Mike, um, listen, I don't know how to say this. I don't want you to look down on me. I'm like, brother, I already looked down on you. Don't worry. No, I'm just kidding. I said, don't worry about it. Just what is it? And he goes, look, the bottom line is, man, he goes, I'm just, I, sometimes I have doubts. I said, what do you mean you have doubts? He goes, sometimes I just read in the word, and sometimes I'll be reading, and, and, and I know I'm saved, and I know I love Jesus, and I know the gospel's true, but just every once in a while, I'll read something, or I'll read um, some, some uh, critics' views of the gospel and the word of God, and, and it begins to kind of eat at me a little bit. And he goes, what do, I, what do I do with that? And what I really realized at that particular moment is I tried to tell them, I said, listen, you need to understand that this is common. That we do, people won't tell you this, but at times there is a reason why sometimes you begin to doubt and, and doubts can begin to, to creep in. You've got an enemy that wants you to ultimately doubt. But here's the deal. It's not that they're lost. I believe they're saved. They've demonstrated true and clear fruit, which is consistent of salvation. So they've demonstrated that very clearly. But what they're saying is, what do I do with this? It reminds me a little bit of the story that we find in the word of God of, in, in Mark once again. Um, and what we find there in, in, in Mark chapter 9 and verse 3, uh, there's a story about a man whose son is, is demon-possessed. And he causes him to throw himself down and injure him, and he's had this demon ever since he was a child. And the man comes to Jesus, and he asks him, hey, would you heal my son? And Jesus turns to the man, and he says these words to him. Um, specifically, he says, all things are possible for those who believe. And the father at that point turns and says, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't, it, what does Jesus do? Then Jesus heals him. Why? Because of his faith is true. Not because it was great, but because it was placed in him, right? Jesus didn't sit there and go, well, dude, why don't you go back and get your faith right and fully believe in me and then come back and try it again, right? No, he doesn't do that, okay? He just sits there and goes, look, I know that you have faith. He goes, God, help me with my unbelief. And that's what some of these guys are saying. Say, man, I believe this, but, but at the same exact time, what, what do I do with some of these doubts that I ultimately have in? And, you know, I could sit there and once again, I could be unlike Jesus and just pile on and say, because you are wicked and depraved and you might be lost and you need to question your salvation. And, uh, and, and you're just, if your heart wasn't so wicked, you would really truly believe. But I don't think that's the way that God would lead us to go. Instead, what I would think we'd have us do is extend mercy. Jude 22 says this, and have mercy on those who doubt. He's speaking about believers. Sometimes you just, you just don't know what to do with certain things. You hear things and you don't know what to do. So what I want to do is I want to give you a prescription of mercy. Maybe you're sitting there today and you're sitting there going, man, I've got a lot of this. But the truth of the matter is I hear all these different things or I'm in college or I'm in high school and all these people are saying all these other things. How do I know? What do I do? Well, here's my prescription of mercy to you. Study your Bible. Study your Bible. And you sit back and you go, how in the world is that going to ultimately be able to help me? Well, let me explain something just for a minute. What you begin to do is this, is that your true confidence does not come by hearing other people's teaching and study of their study of the Word of God. It's useful and it is helpful and it can help us tremendously. And I stand on the shoulders of many other men of God that have a better grasp of the word of God myself. But when the confidence comes in is you're not letting somebody else do the study for you. You yourself begin to do the hard work of the study of the gospel and the word of God. 
let me tell you, this happened to me this last week. As I'm studying through this and working through this, and I'm beginning to see all these incredible connections, and I begin to think about how he starts it with the truth of the beginning, and I begin to look at these two different perfectly uh, webbed together and connected tapestry of, of prophecy from many, many hundreds of years from two different prophets. And then I begin to see the consistency of how this man is, 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 is demonstrated so clearly and characterized. He's got all the characteristics of the one who was prophesied of 400, 900 years before that particular time. And then I begin to read there. And this is what I literally did in my office. I sat there and raised my hand and said, God, you're glorious. This has to be of God. This is too intricate, too difficult, too amazing for man to ever be able to think this up and put it together. It's too much. But here's the deal. That doesn't happen when you're just a student of another student of the word. Important, but it doesn't happen. Then you find yourself saying, well, such and says, Piper says this, and MacArthur says this, and Brother Mike says this. We won't listen to him. But all these other guys say all this. Who are we supposed to believe to? And this is what happens when you're sitting and you're reading and your, your, the eyes, your eyes are being opened up to how complex and amazing the scriptures are. The Holy Spirit confirms in your heart that what you are reading is absolutely 100% true. You can go back and listen, and I encourage you, there are great apologists that don't apologize for the faith, but what they do is they argue the faith and the truth of the gospel and the truth of the word, and they confront all of those skeptics in an amazing way that will help you. But I believe that the Holy Spirit reserves true confidence and the truthfulness of the word of God to the students of the word of God. You get that? So study the word. Now, I'm going to give you just kind of one last thing here that we're going to look at. And that is, we've looked at two things. We've looked at the good news declared. We've looked at the good news foretold. And finally, we said good news for you. Here's good news for you. Now, what I want to do is I want to look at verse 4 just a little bit more in detail. And what I want to do is I want to look at uh, two things. I want to look at, I want to look at his ministry uh, broken up into two parts. First of all, his method, John's method. And then we're going to look at John's message, all right? So just hang with me just for a moment. First of all, let's look at uh, John's ministry and his method, all right? John's method, it breaks up into two parts. First of all, he called people to the wilderness. Called people to the wilderness. Notice verse four. Jesus appeared baptizing in the wilderness, okay? So he's out in the wilderness telling people to come to where he is. What's so significant about that? Well, let me tell you this. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you can begin to glean a little bit of significance here. And there's actually great significance. What that is, is if you remember when God called his people and saved them out of Egypt, do you remember? Took them out of Egypt. Where did he call them to? Did he call them to another country immediately? Did he call them to the city? Where did he call them? He called them to the wilderness. He called them to the desert. It was a picture of them leaving everything else behind, leaving the world behind, being a separated people unto God. And the only place to go where there was no other people is where? Come into the wilderness. So it's interesting because what we find is uh, one, one commentator uh, suggests this. He, he points out, he says, the desert became like this. It became significant because God meets, reveals himself to, tests, and saves his people in the wilderness. He did it in the Old Testament, and now at the beginning of the New Testament, he's calling him to the same place. Why? Because he wants to save his people once again. The second part of his ministry, not only his, uh, to his method, not only did he call people to the wilderness, but he also called them to baptism. Now, the word baptism literally means in the Greek to dip fully or to plunge or immerse. It's one of the reasons why we don't sprinkle, okay? Because when it says to baptize, it means get them wet all the way, dunk them fully and completely. Does that make sense? 
Now, what we don't know, though, just being completely honest, we don't know where Mark kind of, or, or uh, John came up with this exactly. Now, we know that God commanded him to do it, but was he, some people think, was he getting this act of baptism from some other religion? Where did he get this act itself? And it is true, as we read historically, and even from the Jews, that they did have these kind of like uh, cleansing type um, uh, ceremonies where they would cleanse the body before their gods, but we're just not really sure if he was adopting it from where he was adopting it from. But what we do know is what he's doing is unique, unlike it had ever been done before. And even though we don't know how he ultimately came about to do it, what we do know is we know his significance. Again, in the same place out in that wilderness, when the people came to Mount Sinai, God was gonna make a new covenant. He was gonna make a covenant with his people. And this is what he ultimately told him them in the covenant in Exodus chapter 19 and verse six. He said, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. All of you are going to be holy. All of you are gonna be priests who are gonna come before me and you're gonna be true and you're gonna be spotless and you're gonna worship me. That was the covenant. But then we read a little bit further down from Exodus chapter 19 and we find that what God did is he commanded them before he makes his covenant that they had to purify themselves. In Exodus 19.10, it tells about them washing of their clothes and purifying themselves. But here was the deal. It was as a symbol of the moral and spiritual transformation necessary to enter into a right relationship with God. When they washed their clothes and they washed themselves, they were cleaning the outside up, but taking all the baths you want, it's not gonna clean up your soul and your heart. But it was an outward demonstration of an inward reality of what God was going to do to save them and pardon them from their sins in light of what Christ would ultimately do. Are you with me on this? It's the same thing we do with baptism. You get baptized, it doesn't save you. It demonstrates that you have been saved graciously by a holy God. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. And so that was the method that he went about. But he also had a message. And let's look at his message just for a moment. It was, first of all, a message of repentance. Look at verse four again. He says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of what church? Of repentance. For what? The forgiveness of sins. Now, the word repentance literally means, now just catch this. It means to change one mind, one's mind, or to alter one's understanding. So when a person, when God begins to save an individual, what does he do? He changed their mind. Changes their mind about what? About everything. Changes their mind about who God is. Changes their mind about who they are. And changes their mind about sin. You know, when, when, when we're lost, how do we think of ourselves? Pretty good. Even when we're having a bad day, we're better than the mass murderer. We feel pretty good about ourselves. We're a good person. The thought of God throwing us and casting us into hell, a loving God, is just beyond us. Why? Because we just don't have the right mindset. Why would a good God do that? Good God doesn't throw good people into hell. You're right. A good God does not throw good people into hell. You with me? And so what the scriptures say here is we find out about this repentance. When God begins to do a work and he opens up your eyes from the blindness of sin, all of a sudden we begin to sit there and say, well, listen, Sin used to be wonderful. It used to be great. It used to be attractive. I used to want to do it. It even looked fun. But when Christ saved me, it doesn't look the same anymore. Yeah, it's fun for a season sometimes, but really what it is is this rebellion against God. And because of it, 
that I, I, I am deserving of the righteous wrath of a holy God against me. I've changed my mind of what it's about. I've changed my, my mind about me. I'm not a good person. I'm deserving of death. Every part of me has been saturated with sin. And so what you do is because you change your mind about all that, you ultimately change your direct, direction as well. And you no longer pursue those things that you used to pursue, but now you pursue the things which are just opposite. And what is that? The righteousness of God and God himself. That was his message. Turn from your sin and change your mind about who you are and what you've done and who God is and what sin is all about. That's the beginning of salvation. The second thing he writes here is this. The second part of his message was it was a message of faith. It was a message of faith. He says down in the word of God, look at verse 7. He says, and he preached, uh, he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. He says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You need to understand something. John was no dummy. He understood that he was it during that day. Did you see what the Bible said? It said they were all coming out to him. Probably not every single person, but tons of droves of people were coming out to see John. John was popular. If you read, even in the very earliest non-Christian Jewish accounts, what we find is that they recorded, the historians recorded far more about John the Baptist than they did about Jesus Christ. And so he was popular. Everybody knew him. Everybody looked at him. He was a, he was a rock star, if you will, Right? Not a good thing, but you understand the analogy, right? So everybody knew him, but you know what he said? He sat there and said, I can't have you looking at me. I can't have you trusting me. Don't come and trust me for the forgiveness of your sins. He says, all I could do is get you wet. He says, all I could do is is wash the outside of you. He says, the one that's coming after me, Jesus, he's far greater. He will rip out and burn out of your very soul sin through the Holy Spirit and with fire, he says. He's much greater. He even says, to put it in perspective, he says, I'm not even worthy to bend down and untie his sandal. Now, what he's talking about is he's talking about the custom of taking somebody's shoe off, sandal off, and beginning to wash their feet. Now, for you and I, we don't really understand this. Now, now my children, I love them. They're awesome, but they were just like me when I was a kid. They love to go barefoot outside. Any of y'all's kids love to go barefoot outside? Love to go barefoot outside, right? Love to go barefoot outside. But even when I get a, I manage to get a sock and a shoe on their foot and they go out, they still come in and there's still somehow dirt on their foot. I don't know how in the world they do that, right? And you're just sitting there going, man, that's incredible. But think now in the time, no, it's all good. I love you guys. I got my kids down here and they're like, What's up, Dad? It's a good thing. It's a good thing. I embarrassed him. I'm in big trouble. All right, so here's the deal. Never again. All right, so here's the deal. So in this time, they're not wearing Nikes, Adidas, anything else. What are they wearing? They're wearing sandals. Okay, we're not talking beach sandals. Okay, get that out of your mind. Flip them on, go to the beach, come back, rinse off. No, we're talking disgusting, grimy, muck, dirt, dust, building up in between the toes with animals everywhere, goats, sheep, donkeys, you stepping in it, you you understand. I'm not trying to make it worse than it is, but that's what your feet are like. When you get to the end of the day, you want them washed, but you don't even want to touch them, okay? So at this particular point, what they would do is for some, they would have slaves do this job because it was only really good for slaves to be able to do. For anybody else, it was too much. And so what they're saying is this was, and it wasn't any, any slave, it was a Gentile slave that they believed that their bodies were nothing, were, were good for nothing except for to fuel, fuel the fires of hell. That's what they believed about Gentiles. 
And so he sits there, and normally he's looking at an idea of untying the shoe to washing Jesus' feet. It's something that everybody in the world views as way below them. And he sits there and says, I can't look down on it. He says, for me, Jesus is so much higher. For me to wash his feet is too far above me. I'm not worthy even to be able to wash his filth-soaked feet. He's that great. He's that mighty. And so no wonder in the other Gospels he continues to say, I must decrease and he must increase. Now there's an amazing thing for me here. Um, And the truth of the matter is, is some would sit back and go, you know what, I'm not saved. And in light of the Gospel that we preached all the way through this, let me just explain something very quickly. There would be two reasons for that. Number one, you have too high a view of yourself. Have too high a view of yourself. You hear the good news of Jesus Christ, and it's not good news because you think in your heart, why did he have to waste his life to die for me? I'm too good for him to have had to die. And the only thing I can do with you for that is pray that God would open up and mercifully open up your eyes to see you and the reality of who you truly are. And unless you do, you will not call out in mercy and grace and see him as extraordinarily worthy and valuable. But there's a second reason why some may not call out today. They may not call out secondly because they have a too low view of Jesus. I run into this all the time. I'll come to people and I'll share the gospel and they'll say that truly is good news. And and you begin to talk with them and they begin to talk about how sinful they are. You're not trying to convince them that they're a sinner. It's one way or another. They view and they understand just how sinful they are. And they're sitting there going, man, I'm right. I'm deserving of death. And you're sitting there going, man, they're going to get saved today. They're going to come to faith in Christ. They recognize their need for Jesus, and they recognize how how sinful they are. And you begin to share it with them, but then they end up with this. Well, Brother Mike, you don't know all I've done. I'm far too sinful for Jesus to forgive me. Now, that sounds humble, and it sounds better than the prideful person who who says, I am in no need of forgiveness, But both of those are equally as wicked and sinful and both will lead you to hell. Because to sit back and understand Christ's death on the cross is anything less than fully sufficient to save every one of your sins and every one of my sins is not a slide on you, it's a slide on him. It's saying, the first one is, it's saying, not I'm not enough, it's saying, you're not enough. It's amazing to me as we're talking about washing each other's feet that here he's not worthy to wash Jesus' feet because we understand it in its contemporary con- in its in its context. But then we move to John, and right before Jesus dies, he gathers around his disciples and he gets a pail, some water, and he gets and he gets some towels, and he comes to him and he begins to wash their feet, each and every one of them. He begins to do the word dirty work and begins to wash them out. Here's the Savior of the world. He called all of creation into existence just through his words. And he's cleaning their feet, and he gets to Peter, and Peter says, you cannot wash my feet. I will never allow you to wash my feet. And he turns to Jesus, and he says, Peter, unless I cleanse you, unless you allow me to clean you, you can have no part of me. And so then in light of Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, we understand exactly what he means when he says this. I did not come to serve, but to be served and to give my life as a ransom for many. As God is calling you and 
pulling at your heart and you see your condition, you see the glorious good news of the victory that Jesus had over death on the cross and that he died to, 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 in, in your place as a substitute for you, here's what I want you to be able to ultimately focus on. Unless you allow Jesus to serve you through his death, burial, and resurrection, you can have no part of him. Will you repent for the same and believe the same message that John preached? Repent and believe for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus, we come to you right now. We thank you and we praise you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for its truth. I thank you that even though I'm incapable to really convey the truth and the wonders of your glorious grace and the truth of your word, God, that you are sufficient, even when I am not. Lord, I pray that you would call and draw people right now to faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you please stand? I'll be down here, down front. If you want to pray or if you want to know, if you want to be...